Welcome to this modern education podcast that explores learning from the everyday exchange of thoughts and ideas to the theories and practices behind entire systems. Think education is cool? So do we. So we pair two conversations, learn about our guests, then learn from our guests, share your takeaways, and come back for more. You're listening to Think, Pair, Share with me, Audrey Scott. Dr. Andrea Christensen is the Director of Education, Schooling, and Society and a fellow within the Institute for Educational Initiatives at the University of Notre Dame. She's a former school teacher who received her PhD in the Department of Psychology, and her research and teaching concerns effective teacher instruction and classroom practices that support student motivation to learn. Andrea has a profound influence on undergraduate students through her ability to create environments that stimulate significant student learning and intellectual engagement. And I am so happy to have her joining us here today. Hi, Andrea. Welcome. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm well. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. Doing very well. Good, good, good. We're full swing into the first semester here again um, already. It sort of blinked and the summer went by. You're right. There is not a lot of downtime. And the beginning of the semester is always so busy, but I enjoy it so much. I get to come back in and be with the students. And that's the best part of what I do. One of my colleagues told me that she teaches for free. They pay her to grade. And I think that's exactly how I feel that I can be in the classroom all day. And I love it so much. So it's exciting for me to, to get back into the semester. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's a great, great way to look at it. So, um, but yeah, and we'll talk about some of that passion actually, um, because I do always want to hear, you know, the world could be your oyster and you choose to do this. And I am not a person who likes to be the center of attention in that sounds odd coming from a person who for a living stands in front of a room of people and talks to them, but I am a massive introvert. So this is a really uncomfortable for me. Well, we certainly appreciate you going um, outside your comfort zone for us because you have long been um, one of the people that we want to talk to. And we're so excited that you just keep rising and congratulations on your relatively new, yeah, director of um, education, schooling and society. So congratulations for that, for sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's a, it's ESS is very close to my heart. So I'm happy to be there. I certainly um, want to hear more about that. But um, first, as you may be aware from some of the other podcasts, we're going to do our little fun section at the beginning and um, starting last, well, the first year was sort of a a hodgepodge of of things, but then we started doing a theme. And then last month we started with a grab bag. So don't be too nervous. I think it'll it'll be okay. Um, Matt Closer uh, was kind enough to kick off that new little segment with us uh, last month. Uh, But this month, actually, I was kind of looking around and I saw a calendar of days to celebrate in September. Mm -hmm. And so I was Um, some of them are kind of nice and serious, and then some of them are really kind of goofy and fun. Um, So I would put them into a bag and we'll just pick out a couple and, and, uh, and see what that brings us. Um, Sound okay? Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Okay, great. Um, So jaunty grab bag music. I'm so curious. Good. So am I. See what we have here. First one. Uh, Ooh, September 6th, National Coffee Ice Cream Day. Who knew you needed a whole day for that? But that sounds delicious to me. It does. Do you do you like coffee? 
Do I you? love coffee. I love coffee ice cream. Um, I'm allergic to eggs and men, many ice creams have eggs. So I have to be careful about which ice cream I, I eat, but coffee ice cream is definitely one of my favorite flavors. Oh, good. I love that too. And I have a good friend uh, who <laughs> that's possibly her favorite thing. And also, as it turns out, cause I'm just, I know this from for other references, but if ice cream is not your thing, or if you are allergic to eggs, September gives you another chance on September 29th. It's just regular old national coffee day. Wonderful. <laughs> well, I celebrate that every day. <laughs> Me too. Several times. actually. <laughs> um, we'll have to let FJ and Bridget know, and maybe they can record a special cup of Joe uh, offering Fine. on that day. That'd be perfect. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. All right. Back to the grab bag. Okay. <laughs> uh, wait. This is September 19th. It's, this is big time. It's international talk like a pirate day. It is my goodness. I, <laughs> what in the world? Just throw a lot of args in there. Arg. Yes. <laughs> that is why in the world is that a, a day? I don't know. I wonder who gets to decide these kind of things, right? Yes. Uh, okay. Let's see. September 14th, national eat a hoagie day. Actually, it's same kind of sandwich, right? But different names. Uh, did you guys grow up calling it something specific? A hoagie, a grinder, submarine, po'boy? Probably a submarine. I mean, I'm I'm from Southern California. Okay. Um, I've and I guess as we all do when we're growing up, we don't think we have special names for things. We think those are just the names, right? Exactly. Um, but yeah, I think we called it a sub sandwich. I think yeah. so too. From here, so I think we call them subs, but maybe that was because subways. I don't know. I don't think I did a lot of that when I was little. Maybe they were just plain old sandwiches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't. Do, I don't think I ate a lot of subs growing up. Maybe the peanut butter and jelly sandwich that I took school lunch with me. That was. That's probably that was, about it. That was pretty much every day. I think. Yeah. The. Uh, I think if we got strawberry jelly, it was um, fancy because normally yes. it was just cream. Okay. Good day. <laughs> It was a good day. Okay. Let's see what else do we have? Um, Nash. Oh, okay. Today, today, September 13th is apparently national kids take over the kitchen day. Oh, okay. I like that. Yeah. Um, is this a good idea in your home or <laughs> my kids are adults, so it's a great idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I like that. And in fact, my, my, I have two boys. They're nearly 25 and one just turned 28. Um, they are pretty into cooking. Um, they like to cook. And, and I think, you know, in, in our house growing up, we were really into food and cooking and, and they were a part of it. And so they, they can, they can do it now. They can, they can cook on their own. And so I think that's great. I think having a national kids in the kitchen day is a good start. It's a great start. And I love that you guys cook together. And do you have like a, a favorite dish that you cook or that they would cook? The Probably not a favorite dish, but I think one of our biggest traditions, um, my father's side of the family is Italian. And on Christmas Eve, we every year for my entire life and my kids' entire lives and my father's entire life, we've done the Feast of the Seven Fishes on Christmas Eve. Uh -huh. um, and we've had groups anywhere from 50 people that we serve to, to have as, you know, a small 
Christmas with five or six people, especially during COVID. Um, But we've always done it no matter what. Even during COVID, you were able to do it. Mm -hmm. In 2020, it was just me and the boys. Just just me and the boys with our feast. It was very relaxed. And they looked like, like, I don't know, like mountain men because they had let their beards and their hair grow for the whole COVID. And so they're me with my hairy boys and at the at the table eating our fish. I've heard of it, but I've never actually participated. Can you tell me what that looks like? It really started um, in the Italian American community. And it was, I believe at first it was meant to be kind of simple foods so that, that it could be celebrated by families with, with all sorts of resources. Right. So, so it was, um, so it was kind of a low cost meal. Now it's not so much because fish is getting a little bit more expensive. And I think throughout the years it's become um, more and more elaborate, but there are certain like traditional fishes that are always included. Um, smelts, which is not everyone's favorite, but it's fried- my dad's favorite. Really? His dad's from Holland. And they, that was like a tradition for them. Smelt. We were yes. like, Ooh. yes, yes. <laughs> but, but you know, what? smelts are an acquired taste. I think, I think so too. I think yes. um, as we got older, we certainly participated a little bit more. Um, Absolutely. So we do fried smelts. And then bacala, which is a salt cured cod, Mm. um, which used to be very inexpensive. So you could feed a lot of people with it. And we make a pasta sauce with the cod, with the bacala. And then you can kind of be creative depending on how many courses you want to make, um, depending on, you know, the size of your crowd. But we always include some sort of smoked fish in the kind of the appetizer at the beginning and um, yeah, it's, it's lovely. And it's, it's really one of our favorite traditions and we, it's all about food in my family. Everything's all about food. <laughs> I love that about big Italian families, especially I, I definitely know a few of those. Yes. Oh, well, that's great. And is there a traditional thing with that? At Christmas so that Eve? is the feast of the seven fish. And then in my family, so my father's Italian, my mother is Mexican. And so on Christmas day, we have tamales. Oh, that sounds so delicious. Okay. Now we shouldn't have done this next time I'm interviewing someone mid afternoon after lunch. Right. It's been all food so far. And so now we're just, now we're getting hungry. Okay. Okay. Just a couple more and then we'll get back into some of that good stuff too. But I'm so excited because so far it's just been a surprise. (laughs) They are surprising and there are kind of really fun ones. Okay. And odd ones too, I guess like this one, September 24th, National Punctuation Day. Seems hmm. seems super random. How does one celebrate National Punctuation Day? I don't know. Do you have a favorite punctuation mark? <laughs> I have never thought about that. I kind of like the, maybe the square brackets. Is that considered a punctuation mark? Sure. Sure. Why not? I kind of like semicolons. Semicolons are nice. Yeah. Yes. We took a long pause. And then we're, we're going to start a new idea. That's right. I think that we should put one here, go have lunch together, come back. That's right. <laughs> we have lots of good meals to eat. Okay. Let's do one more and okay. then we'll jump into things. Okay. One second. All right. Let's see what this one is. Okay. Another international day. This one maybe has a little, little bit more gravitas to it uh, than the, was it the pirates? Yes. Um, <laughs> Talk like a pirate day. Talk like a pirate day. Uh, but this is um, International Literacy Day, September 8th. I guess um, 
we missed it this year, but we'll be aware of it for next year, unless you were already aware of it. I was not. Okay. I was but, not. Yeah. I was hoping that every day is literacy day, but, That's but a good idea. I guess we have to have a special day for it. <laughs> good suggestion. I like that very much. Um, and yeah, I guess it's meant to raise awareness for literacy problems, both locally and globally. So urges communities to work together to raise educational standards. So very good. I like that very much. And I guess since we said we would only do one more, so let's be women of our words. And then actually that leads us nicely into education, which is um, sort of the crux, obviously, of this uh, podcast and and what you have dedicated yourself to. I always ask what got you to this spot, maybe take us on a little journey on that path to Notre Dame. It's a a very windy path. Um, So I'll I'll give you the cliff notes. Well, Notre Dame is actually been a part of my life for my entire life. Um, My father went to Notre Dame. My mother went to St. Mary's. They actually met in high school and he went to Notre Dame and she came here to go to St. Mary's. She worked her way through St. Mary's um, in what uh, was called at the time, the staff student program. She was the first, she's the 11th of 12 children. And she was the first in her family to go to college. And she, so she had to work, I think 30 hours a week. And, and in exchange for that, she got to go to St. Mary's. So they met in high school, they went here together and then, um, they got married right after they graduated. So Notre Dame has been a big part of my life, football games and coming back for visits with, uh, my family, my sisters and my parents. Um, and then I went to undergrad at, at Notre Dame as well. Um, and then I was, I, I, I got also met my husband in high school and got married when I was, was, was young and, and started teaching and had my children. And then at some point I, um, as I was teaching, I, I just started thinking, I have questions that I need answered and I'm not going to find the answers here. I really need to understand how to better serve students who struggle. Um, I just felt like I didn't know enough and that I really needed to understand more. So we made our way back to South Bend and I met Julie Turner, who was the co-founder of ESS. And she became my grad school advisor And so I started the PhD program here and worked in academic motivation and learning, have done all my my research in classrooms, working with teachers, working with students, and was able to start to craft answers to my questions, which is wonderful. And ESS just became part of my world. The students became part of my heart. The courses, of course, they were crafted by the woman who um, led me, guided me through my academic journey. Um, So, you know, they just became really important to me. Can I ask a couple of quick follow-ups? Sure, of course. (laughs) When you were in the classroom, what grade, what grade did you teach? Primarily fifth grade. And I loved it. I really did. I loved my time teaching. I thought fifth grade was the best grade. I really did. I thought, you know, the the age that they were the most capable a child could be. And they were just right at the border of, of adolescence. And I just thought that was just perfect. I had so much fun with them. 
That's great. That's actually a really great way to think about it. Yeah. Just before they sort of cross into that middle school sort of threshold. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Well, great. So then you were thinking that you, um, were you encountering some things in the classroom? Yes. So in particular, students who, who struggled in school, I tutored after school. I would, I would come early and tutor before school. I, you know, and I, and I felt like I was putting in so much effort to help students who struggled, but somehow I wasn't quite getting the results that I wanted or helping them enough. And so I thought there must be a better way to help them. And I just don't know what that is. And of course this was pre Google. So you can't Google strategies to (laughs) help struggling students. And then even with children who had already developed behavioral issues in the classroom, what were better ways to help them kind of self-regulate and manage their behavior. And I would get advice from teachers who were far more experienced and I would try that advice and somehow it just wouldn't work and it didn't seem like me. Um, So I just, I just knew that there was more, much more to know and understand Um, and I, and I was curious about it and I was at the point where I felt like I needed a different intellectual challenge. Um, I mean, teaching is challenging, very challenging, (laughs) but I needed a different challenge. And so that is, I decided to go back to school and try to answer some of those questions. Great. Thanks for helping to clarify that. And I want our listeners to understand the sort of, um, what ESS program maybe was, what we were looking for at the time. ESS was an undergraduate program. And when I came back, I wanted to go to a psych grad program. So I needed to take some courses um, that would allow me to apply to the psych grad courses. So I came back and took some psych courses and, and I finished the ESS minor as a 30 year old um, at Notre Dame. Um, So so that's how I met Julie. And that's why I did a capstone project at 30 years old. So great. But I didn't know what I was going to continue on to do. Mm-hmm. I, I thought maybe I'd get a master's, maybe in, in, in education, maybe I'd do a psych PhD, maybe I'd get a master's in social work. But all of my instructors here were so supportive and they kept saying, no, you need to, you definitely need to get a PhD. You, you definitely need to do this. And I thought I have two children. How am I supposed to do that? And they were so supportive that I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do that. And I applied other places, not just to Notre Dame Mm -hmm. and I got in other places, but ultimately working with Julie Turner here, that's what I wanted to do. She was such an important mentor to me. We thought alike. We had the same background in teaching and, and came to graduate school later in life. We both had two, two sons and we just, she became kind of like a second mother to me where, um, she really just helped guide me through my career, through my studies. And yeah, she was just that person for me. What a nice tribute. So then you went and your master's is in psychology. Yes. So, um, I, I applied for the doctoral program, um, which is a, about a five-year program that includes work, master's work and, and PhD. Um, so it was, it was developmental psychology, 
my research focus is academic motivation and learning. Okay. I love that idea of academic motivation. It's a whole area of study in mostly in educational psychology, but it, I mean, it borrows from theories in developmental psychology, cognitive psychology, social psychology as well. So it allowed me to answer some of all actually of those questions that I had. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I feel like when, when I was in school, that was maybe not a focus of how I was taught. I feel like it was more, can you memorize this? So that I think um, captures some of the issues that we have with motivation in school, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because memorize this is not engaging. It's not interesting. It prioritizes certain students with certain capacities or capabilities or opportunities rather than being inclusive of everyone and everyone's experiences and, and everyone's prior knowledge and everyone's strengths. So that is definitely a portion of the issue with motivation and the issues that we see with learning as well. Right. And certainly that works in some cases, and I'm certain that we still have to memorize things, but, um, but, but tell me about that shift for you then. What did you learn in your studies? What do you know that works better? What are you hoping to teach the students that you teach? Yes. In fact, I told, I was speaking in, um, there's a psych class on campus that kind of gives an overview of careers and psychology and I, oh, I go in every semester and talk about educational psychology. And um, I told them exactly that, that um, I had these questions and I went back to school to answer them. And uh, a young woman raised her hand and said, did you answer those questions? I said, I did. And I said, and now I get to teach other people the answer to those questions. And, and how lucky am I that I get to do that? That's great. So yes. So I, I would say that what I would, if I could boil it down, it's a very big question, boil it down into kind of a, a snapshot of what I would want my students to understand is that in order to foster, I think the biggest thing is when we are designing instruction so that we are optimizing motivation in the classroom we are also designing instruction that optimizes learning. They are really two sides of the same coin that um, motivational instructional strategies are also our best practices for learning. Um, So when we start with the student, start with the student's prior knowledge and prior experiences, when we get to understand who they are Um, and where they are in their learning journey. Um, And we design instruction that um, taps into those experiences and interests and starts where they are and meets them where they are. Students are much more likely to be willing to get involved in it. When we give students um, things to do that are interesting, that require them to think and problem solve and make sense of things and make connections to other things they know and other experiences they've had in their lives, um, then they get, they're more likely to get excited about it and want to engage in it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when we give students opportunities to feel like they're learning and improving and that they can think for themselves and they can contribute to the learning and the ideas in the classroom in a meaningful way, they're more likely to get engaged and, and learn what, and want to learn what's going on. When we give them things that are purposeful and meaningful, when we help them to construct not just um, this kind of mass of um, disparate facts, right? Mm -hmm. We help them to construct frameworks and schemas mm -hmm. and help them fit the information into these frameworks and make connections um, and understand how things work, um, how things work together then they'll leave with an understanding that endures um, rather than a bunch of facts that they'll probably forget down the road and probably not, not that far down the road. Um, <laughs> in motivation literature, we kind of boil it down to kind of, well, some people three big ideas, other people about four big ideas. If we support students need for autonomy and autonomy is there are some misconceptions that it's just about choice. Choice is great. Letting students make choices is great, but it's also about giving students the opportunity to think for themselves, to develop their own ideas and strategies, to make their own connections, and to really give them that kind of meaningful voice in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, when we help students feel like they belong, that they are respected, they're cared for, that they're understood and seen and heard in the classroom, and that they can collaborate meaningfully with students and teachers, yeah. they're more likely to learn and be engaged. When we help students feel competent, like they don't have to feel like they're the best student, mm -hmm. but if we help them feel like they can learn and improve, and we help show them that, look, you went from this point to this point, because they have to see it. They have to see mm -hmm. that they've improved. Mm -hmm. um, so they believe, they believe that they can improve. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and you have to support them with strategies to help them improve. And when the work that they do is meaningful or relevant or connected to their lives, or they know why it's important to learn that, mm -hmm. then they're more likely to get engaged and learn, <laughs> just, just learn and understand. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I, I love that that has become the focus. I feel like I can kind of sense that and I'm not in the classroom like you are. I can sense a change. I can sense a, a, a more engaged person and student. I mean, are you feeling that? You know, it's interesting. So I can see that my, um, the ACE teachers that I teach in the summer, mm -hmm. they all understand this. They know this. And that's mostly because they work with the most amazing faculty members anywhere. But it's interesting that my undergrads, they understand it when they hear it and it makes sense to them, but many of them, most of them have not experienced learning in that way. Mm -hmm. Even, I mean, even the students who went to the best schools, they can talk about a teacher that they remember who did those things, mm -hmm. but in general, they had very similar experience to what you're describing, that they were asked to memorize a lot of facts and give it back in the same way it was given to them. And they were very good at it. Mm -hmm. They were very, very good at it. 
Yeah. But, and they didn't even realize that there was a different way to do things. Right. See, so that's a little bit surprising to me because I feel like, oh, the things have come so far. Um, but, but what is your hope there? Is your hope to be able to get that to be so it's not just one teacher in the school, right? Yeah, the, ideally, that's what we would like to do, right? We've always seen there's a, a lag or a disconnect um, in educational research that where the ideas take a really long time to mm-hmm. get into the, into the classroom and, and a really long time to be applied. There are a lot of reasons for that, but the more students that I can help understand that, whether they go into teaching or any other area in education or their, their parents or their community members, or they go into corporations that it doesn't matter where they are. If they understand this, then it's more likely to be um, something that they're going to look for. So on the last day of my educational psychology class, mm-hmm. I always have students, I say, no matter what you do in your life, I want you to walk away from this class with three big ideas that you can take into any area of your life. Great. More than likely, they're not going to understand all the vocabulary or all the terms or everything that we did, but if they can leave with three enduring understandings that are important for their life and, and they, and have them think that through, um, a lot of them latch on to the motivational piece because that is something, those kind of principles of motivation, autonomy, belongingness, competence, and meaningfulness, purpose, relevance. Mm-hmm. Those are ideas that can be applied anywhere in life mm-hmm. to coaching, to leadership positions in any work setting, to parenting, to whatever it is, those ideas really cut across just about anything. I agree with you and actually want to talk a little bit about what can you do with ESS in a way, because I know it's been growing and it's so um, popular and that's a tribute to you and all the folks you work with. I I know you're going to say, it's not just me. Um, And I know you have a wonderful team there, but I do want, I do want to talk a little bit more about that. I wonder if we don't start with a little bit of an umbrella to kind of ground our listeners as to what ESS is, where it kind of sits. I know also, I mean, so many congratulations right now for you guys. Not only are you the new director. So I hold, I I wear a lot of hats in ESS at the moment. Okay. Um, So I've been the director of undergraduate studies for, this is my third year as director of undergraduate studies. And that's, that role is um, advising um, course planning, event planning. It's, it's pretty much all of the admin, kind of the administrative work with the, that has to do with the students. Um, and then I've just been appointed the director of the program as well. Um, and I'm really at that, at this point, just kind of learning what that role entails. Um, but I've done some data analysis and written some annual reports and, and, and whenever I have a moment, I would love to just sit down and think about what are my goals for the program in general. I mean, we always have some overarching goals, getting students more involved in educational research, trying to recruit more men to the program, increasing diversity and and increasing our work in um, issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
Um, although we have, I mean, really those are some of the core principles that our program was founded on. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've always worked in that area always, Mm -hmm. but once I get kind of a handle on all this and maybe get to take off one of my hats, (laughs) I would love to really sit down and think about what do I want for this program? Because I care so deeply about it. And I care so deeply about the students who join us. I can tell that you have such a passion for it and and that the students are at the core of that. People love taking your classes. They can just tell that you are genuine and care. And that, that, that is partially to me, that's, that's a big hurdle in the first place. And it's, that's sometimes why those teachers um, connect with people that you mentioned, maybe one or so in their classes, but, but you certainly are, are that person for a lot of people. So we sure appreciate what you're doing. And I know you've hardly had a chance to try to figure out which hat you're wearing at every moment, but uh, we'll have to have you back on and sort of uh, hear what, how things are going once you can settle um, yeah. into things a little bit more, but I know there are wonderful things already on tap and, and I know you'll take those to all kinds of different great levels too. So we're excited and congratulations again on that new directorship. Um, and then also, I, I believe the program has been elevated to a supplementary major. So congratulations for that. And I do appreciate you kind of giving our audience a little bit of um, a grounding of where ESS or education, schooling and society um, fits in the university. And then um, sort of what this new uh, supplementary major means for you guys. So, uh, yes, I would love to. Um, originally, uh, the education, schooling and society program or ESS, as we call it, um, started as an interdisciplinary minor, um, and it was started by Julie Turner and Stuart Green, um, in the nineties, I believe. Um, and, uh, they started it in response to, we didn't have any, um, sort of educational studies program at all at the university. Um, any student who wanted to get involved in education would have to take the the education program at St. Mary's, which is a teacher prep program. ESS is not a teacher prep program. It's more of an educational studies program where we are concerned with what are the big questions facing education in the U.S. today, we include studies in educational history, educational law and policy, learning sciences, issues in literacy, STEM, um, and infused throughout all of those areas are questions about issues of equity and diversity in education. We encourage our students to get involved in educational research. In fact, every student does their own educational research project in their senior year. Our students kind of do this on their own, but we definitely encourage community involvement um, in some education-related way. Most of our students on their own are engaged in tutoring in the community or working in educational organizations, starting clubs on campus, tutoring at the adult ed program. They're just wonderful people (laughs) who who definitely, um, in their hearts, want to make the world a better place through education. So as a minor, students are required to take five courses, the intro course, three electives, and their capstone requirement, their research project. As a major, it allows students to become more specialized. It signals to employers and to the world, to grad programs, that this was um, one of their primary areas of study. And 
we had for years, many of our students took more than the required number of courses because they loved the courses so much. They loved the faculty members. They loved the, the topics. Yeah. They just loved the ideas. And so they, I had students at our at graduation reception saying, I identify with my minor in ESS more than I do with my major. And wow. they loved it. Yeah. So we worked we, the ESS team, um, headed by Nicole McNeil, our former director, worked really hard to get this, uh, to, to get approval to become a supplementary major. And the supplementary major means that, so students can't take it as their only major. It has to be in conjunction with another major, but they are required to take more courses in ESS. And they are five electives now, um, instead of the three for the minor. And in those five electives, three need to be in a concentration so they can choose kind of an area to specialize in um, the learning sciences, comparative ed education or policy, um, or um, language literacy and culture. That's the third area. Okay. So, so they get to specialize in, a, in an area of interest and that concentration um, is on the transcript. So it really signals that this is something that I, that I really cared about and that I was able to, to specialize in. That sounds wonderful. And that's honestly a huge tribute to you and, and, and Nicole and, and all the folks that, that work with you guys, because I consistently hear on a frequent basis, how wonderful you are. And I know lots of students who have taken your courses and just absolutely loved them. And, oh, um, so and kind. I, oh, well, oh, but it's all earned. Honestly, you're wonderful. And, um, Based on what you were just saying, what do people, when they do graduate with this, and I know it's relatively new to have it be in the supplementary major, but are there industries that they tend to go into? So we do have a fair number of students that go into, into teaching um, in, in a number of different programs. In alternative certification programs, ACE included, we have many go to graduate school and traditional master's of ed programs or um, into PhD programs. We have students who do policy work. We have students who go to law school. We have students who go right into industry and do educational consulting or work in um, education startups, doing kind of um, curriculum work or ed tech work. Um, so really it runs the gamut. Yeah. Uh, but most stay in some sort of education focused field. And even if they go to law school, they tend to start working in ed policy or ed law. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. But that is very, very varied. <laughs> um, it is. I mean, there are <laughs> lots of different ways you can take these these courses and really apply them. I know you said you're sort of one of the goals is to recruit um, young gentlemen, maybe it sounds like maybe they don't know that there's lots of options because you know, that where they might be able to take this in a different path. Is that kind of true? I think so. I think so. Traditionally in our U S culture, teaching is a, is a looked at as a feminine profession, unfortunately, but historic, it, it has deep roots in our educational history. Um, and so when they look at ESS and they see education, schooling, and society, they, they, they tend to see that as a teacher prep 
program mm -hmm. or that's for people who want to be teachers. So clearly that's not for me. Right. Um, and so we try to make it very clear. It's not teacher prep. A lot of our students do not become teachers, although a lot do. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of our young men who come in not intending to be teachers end up spending some time being a teacher because yeah. they come to value what it means to be a teacher and the importance of education and the importance of offering equitable opportunities to all students in this country. So some men are surprised by mm -hmm. their response to ESS. So yes, we do tend to have trouble recruiting mm -hmm. men in, in, into the program, but the men who come to the program are wonderful mm -hmm. and they love it. They love it. Yes. Um, so hear that young gentleman. That's right here <laughs> for sure. Oh my gosh. I wish I could take some of your classes. Maybe I'll just sit in the back. You definitely can <laughs> anytime you'd like. Okay. I might just take you up on that because um, it does, it really does seem like it's applicable just in so many ways. And one of the things that's interesting, and I, I believe this has always been your focus, as you had mentioned, it seemed like when you were first in the classroom, there were people that you kind of realized maybe didn't have all the opportunities as other people may have. So I, I don't think we can talk about education without talking about the inequities that exist in our society, because the inequities play out in the realm of education, probably more than in almost any other area of our lives. We see the inequities and opportunities affect students' experiences in school from the very beginning, whether it's opportunities to go to preschool, whether your enriched experiences even before preschool, um, to have those really difficult conversations about what the landscape of education looks like in the United States is really an important starting place and an important place to continue in throughout all of student studies in education. Our hope is that our students become aware of the landscape of education in the U.S. They become aware of some of the challenges and some of the strengths of U.S. education and that they each find their place or their path to work to change what needs to be changed and to enhance what is already a strength. It sounds like through the course of this class and others, they continue to get more and more invested based on what you guys are teaching them and continue to want to be one of those people working for solutions maybe, mm -hmm. or better trade-offs. Is that mm -hmm. the case? Yes, definitely. Definitely. And every day we hear these uplifting stories. I had a student come to me who is working as a teacher's assistant in an, in a Catholic elementary school right now in her junior year, she's spending 10 hours a week working as a teacher's assistant. She said she spent an hour out in the hallway working with a student on um, learning how to estimate in math and, and just worked and worked and worked. And finally at the end, um, the student told her, I never get this when my mom tries to explain it to me or when the teacher does, but I got it with you. Oh. And she said she almost cried. She was so excited about it. And yeah. so we do have students having those positive experiences going out into the world and into our community and into the communities where they live and making small positive changes and experiencing that kind of joy of working with and helping children. 
I feel like you probably never say the work would be necessarily easy, but it's very important. Is that kind of a message that you are trying to get across? And if so, do you think that's helping? I do. I think that perhaps the message is that we all have a role to play in what happens in the U.S. and U.S. schools, whether that's from a parenting standpoint or a teacher or a policymaker or a school board member. We all have a role to play and we can all affect some sort of positive change, even if it's small scale in our community. Um, and I think that students become more and more aware of the need for change and the need that exists right outside their doors or down their streets, but also broadly. And I think one of my primary motivations for being a part of ESS is our students. They're the most incredible people. The students who self-select into our minor and our supplementary major tend to be students who care very deeply about other people and about the world and about making the world a better place. And so getting to spend my time with them is such a gift. So if I can just impart that to them, that you are a gift and that, that, that your desire to learn about all of these issues and to engage in all of these issues and go out and do something about these issues, that in and of itself is the best part of what I do. I mean, it's just, I, I feel like it's the privilege of my life to be able to be here and working with ESS students. I really do. I really do. Oh, I just got chills. I think that's, that's extremely hopeful. So thank you. We're going to end on that note right there. Okay. You can just tell how much you care. And I just know that honestly, that's half the battle. If you're looking at someone that you feel like I'm not, I'm not in this alone. I'm here with somebody else who cares and who's going to um, help us all grow. So thank yeah. you so much for what you do for these students and for your colleagues. Oh, and, thank, and for that, all of us. That's so sweet. I mean, and you say care, honestly, I have two overarching goals at, for every class that I yeah. walk into um, that my students feel cared for as people and as learners. If they feel cared for as people, it means that I see who they are. I understand them. I hear them. I treat them like people and that, that I care for them as learners. I'm going to push them. I'm going to have high expectations for them. I'm going to give them tasks worth doing and knowledge that's worth knowing. Those shape every decision I make when I walk into a classroom. And I hope that my, my students can see and, and feel that because it is certainly my top priority. I cannot imagine the scenario where they can't feel that. So, so grateful for, for you and the work that you're doing and for your time today. I know that you do thank have all you. those hats. So thank you for That's joining okay. us. Well, thank you so much. Okay. It, was, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. And thank you all for joining us for Think, Pair, Share. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Check out our website at iei.nd.edu forward slash media for this and other goodies. Thanks for listening. And for now, off we go.